I came from a beautiful neighborhood. I had a beautiful life. I went to sleep because September 7th was the first day of my high school year. I was going to be a senior. At 22, I was set to start college. I woke up and my life was never the same again. Cops came out with guns drawn and I never saw freedom ever, ever since after that. It's like Roach Motel. Once you get in, you're not getting out. This is Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today we have a very special guest, Sonny Jacobs, one of my favorite people in the world. Sonny Jacobs' story is as crazy as it can get. Is that fair to say, Sonny? Yeah, it, it is. It's pretty crazy. So <laughs> Sonny was uh, wrongfully convicted in 1976. I'm particularly thrilled today because uh, joining Sonny in the studio with me is her uh, well, I could call you a new husband, Peter Fringle. It's a few years now, but he's still a new husband. And Sonny's daughter, Christina Teferro, is going to speak today publicly for the first time ever. So, <clears throat> Sonny, Peter, Christina, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you, Jason. to be here. So, Sonny, let's go back to the beginning. Um, you were living where at the time that this all went down? At the time uh, that this happened, uh, we had been living in North Carolina, but uh, Jesse had gone down to Florida with the promise of uh, some work, and um, we ended up uh, joining him down there. So he went down there originally to, to do some work in Florida, but you went down with the two kids afterwards to meet him. Yes. Right. And then when you went down there, uh, the, your car broke down. Is that what happened? Is that how this all started pretty much? That's how it all started. Right. So your car broke down. Now you're stranded in Florida. You got to get back home. Right. Right. So take us through it. What happens next? You were, you were offered a ride, which was turned out to be a, you know, the, yeah, beginning, of the, the beginning of the terrible saga <clears throat> of Sonny Jacobs, which uh, uh, so, so fill us in, fill in the audience. Well, um, the car had broken down and... Uh, Jesse asked a friend of his to give us a lift, and uh, we were going to go someplace where he knew someone where we could stay and wait for my parents to send some money so we could get back home to North Carolina. Right, but then you end up uh, you end up at, uh, actually taking a rest in the car when this happened, right? Yeah, we uh, pulled into a rest area off the highway. In Florida? Yep, in Florida this was, and... Um, I was in the back with the two children. Now, my son at the time was nine years old. My daughter was only 10 months old. She was still nursing. Right. You were a baby. Yeah, she was a baby. And um, so um, Jesse was in the passenger seat and his friend was driving. And then, um, so we were sleeping in the car in the rest area. Nothing was going on. There was no crime being committed. There was no reason for anybody to It seems like an us. unlikely place for everything to go wrong. Completely. Yeah. I mean, in your sleep. Now, just to give you a visual, by the way, if you would meet Sunny, you would see that she looks like the least likely person to have ever served time in anything uh, <laughs> other than, uh, you know, it looks like someone you would meet in a coffee shop or in a, uh, in, in a theater or something. I mean, mm -hmm. she's, uh, she's the least likely person to have ever served time on death row. At the time, I was, uh, besides being a young wife and mother, I was also a, a hippie, you know, like everybody. You're still a hippie. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. And I was a hippie and a vegetarian, so I mean, I I was totally the least likely person to be in any way involved in in a scene where somebody would get killed. So you're in the car, you're sleeping, and there's a knock knock on the window, right? Well, yeah, we were sleeping in the car, and then the police apparently came to do a routine check of the rest area. And it, it was in the police uh, notes that they said that when they looked in the driver's window, they saw a, a handgun between the driver's feet. And that's what started the whole thing. Um, the, they pulled open the door. They took the gun. They or pulled him out of the car. Then they ordered Jesse out of the car. They took everyone's ID. You were still in the back seat with the kids. I was still in the back seat with the kids. I, I never left the back seat. And um, they called in the driver's identification. 
And then they uh, wanted Jesse's ID, and he was reluctant to give it. Uh, and then they asked me my uh, for my ID. And um, then the word came back on the police radio that the driver from whom they had taken the handgun was on parole. And as I say— So he was subject to arrest, right? Well, as I say often for enough— For having a gun and being on parole, right? Yeah. Even in America, you're not allowed to have a gun if you're on parole. So that changed everything. The policeman then drew his gun. And he said something like, "If uh, nobody move, the next one to move is dead. And then there was gunfire. And so I just covered the children. So you're like literally laying on top of the children as a mother would. Right? Yes. I mean, uh, to protect them. And then there's guns and you don't know what's going on at this point. It was 7.30 in the morning. It was foggy. It was a bit cool still in the morning. And um, all of a sudden this insane thing is going on. I mean... There were, I don't know how many bullets were fired, but it was like all of a sudden we were in a war. And I, 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 I was over the children until it got quiet. And I actually wasn't sure if we were still alive because it was so quiet. And then I determined that I was breathing. We were all, I guess, shocked by what was happening. And um, then I looked up to see if Jesse was okay. And I saw him just standing there, frozen in between the two cars, looking as shocked, basically, as I felt. And the other guy was running around the car with a gun in his hand, ordering Jesse to put us into the police car. And at that point, we became hostages of the man who had just shot the two policemen. Right now it gets more surreal, right? Now you're being ordered to get into a police car by a guy who just killed two policemen who you thought was your friend who was doing you a favor, giving you a ride. So it doesn't get much weirder than that. And now you've got to take the kids at gunpoint and put them in a police car. That's right. And as we, he helped me out of the car with the baby and with my son, Eric, Eric slipped and fell into a pool of blood. Oh. And that's when I saw the two policemen on the ground. So I helped Eric up, and we got we were put into the back of the police car. Jesse in, again in the passenger side, and the guy drove us away. You know, if this was in a movie, nobody would believe it, right? So now you're in the police car. What happens next? I was thinking in my mind, okay, like, how do we get away from this guy? He was racing down the, the highway and because uh, it was on the interstate. Then he pulls off. He was looking for to change cars. I guess he, he realized that the police car was a little too conspicuous. So there was a, a man, uh, an old fella, going out to get his, his mail. And the driver walked up to him, and Jesse followed him. And I was still in the back of the car with the kids, and I thought, aha, now, now I can get, get, get away from here. You know, so I tried to open the doors, but you can't open the back of a police car. No, you can't do that. Yeah. So we're stuck. Anyway, Jesse came back and said, listen, he says we have to go with him in in this man's car. So he takes us and they transfer us into what is now a slightly less conspicuous than a police car, an orange Cadillac. Oh, that's great. This guy's got this guy's got a flair for the dramatic. <laughs> <clears throat> so now this other poor man is also a hostage. They put me and the children in the front seat. Jesse and the older man are in the back seat. He's driving along, and there's very heavy traffic by now. Right. Well, it's, it's rush hour. It's rush hour, and I could hear helicopters above, and I thought, "Oh my God." Maybe the traffic is so bad because maybe there's a roadblock or something, and maybe that's a helicopter, and we're going to be saved. Right, you're going to be saved, right? The cops are going to come get you Great, out of this nightmare. And what we didn't know at the time was that when the man went out to get his mail, his wife was watching out the window. Something shouldn't happen to him from the building to the post box and back, you know. That's <laughs> and a good she wife. S- she saw the whole thing. 
Wow. And she called the police. Wow. So the police, so this is, means two things. One, the police knew that this man had been kidnapped by this other guy who had with the police car and us. Number two, they knew that there was a woman, two children, and a man hostage in that car. In the orange Cadillac. We're driving along in the orange Cadillac. I'm now in the front with the two children. Jesse's in the back with the old man. And we come upon the roadblock. You can see it. There's a roadblock. Thank God, I'm thinking. He makes this insane decision to try to avoid the roadblock, at which point he makes a sharp left, and all the police lined up at the roadblock with their rifles Open fire on the gun, the car. Holy shit. Again, we are being bombarded by bullets. I covered the children again. And the, the car was bouncing with the bullets. Just like, you know, in the movie about um, Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. Where the car is actually bouncing with bullets. Yeah. That's how it was. And then we crashed. We crashed into a, a semi that was parked as part of the roadblock. The police surround the car. Um, the only one who's actually injured was the driver. He was shot in the leg. That's a miracle. Yes. Yes. It's a miracle that we were all alive. So they took him and put him in an ambulance. They g- took Jesse out of the car. They handcuffed him. They took the man out of the car. They took him away somewhere. And Jesse's standing there handcuffed. And a cop comes from the crowd with his gun turned around with the butt end forward and ran over and smashed Jesse in the head and knocked him to the ground. And he said, you better get away from me because they're going to kill me. Okay, so you're holding his hand. You're holding the baby, uh, Christina, who's here now. We can call you a miracle baby now (laughs) since you survived. Before you were a year old, you survived two gunfights, right? (laughs) I mean, it's uh, it's quite extraordinary, you know? I'm very lucky. And she's a lovely, uh, lovely young woman if you'd meet her now. Um, So go ahead. So now what? I mean, even still, uh, what are you thinking now? Are you thinking, because your saviors are here, the cops. No, they're not our saviors anymore because they're pointing guns at me. A minute ago, they were. Uh, Yeah, and then all of a sudden, the whole thing turned, and now... They're pointing guns at me, and I, I tried to explain that we didn't know. I didn't know, like, really, what was going on, but they didn't. They weren't listening because they were there. They had just had two of their comrades at that time. I didn't know, but they were killed. They were dead. We or one of us or all of us were responsible, and it wasn't up to them to figure it out. It was up to them to apprehend us, and so. They take us to an unused portion of the railroad track where the police get out of their cars and start arguing among themselves whether or not to take us in or to simply kill us right there and say we tried to escape. Wow. I I couldn't tell you how many there were, but there was a group of them, and I remember there were three of them standing right by the car where I was, and they they were so vehement about it. They were like, you know, like when you... People are so angry, they start spitting, you know, like sp- I could see the spit coming out of them when they were talking, you know. And it was it was one of the most frightening moments. And like I'm sitting there praying like, oh, I hope the one, the one I call in my head the voice of reason should prevail, which thank God eventually he did because otherwise they would, nobody would have known. So um, he did prevail. They decided they would take us in. Two detectives came in, and they started trying to question me, and they record. In those days, they had the, you know, the tape recorders with real tape. Right. You know, and uh, so they they kept trying to ask me what was what ha- what happened, and, and I kept telling them, I'm really, I really don't know. I really don't know exactly what happened because just like I told you, they, they were taking our ID and asking us questions, and then they were shooting, and I—, I I honestly didn't see who was shooting. So they didn't believe me because they figure if you're there, you know what happened. So they, every time I'd say, you know, you're trying to get me to say something that's not true, they'd stop the recording and start a new recording. While we were being um, interrogated, 
the guy, the driver, the guy who actually did the killing from his hospital bed, asked to speak to the prosecutor. Now, I was, uh, this, is, this is how later I found this out. I didn't know. We didn't know at the time. But, you see, he knew he was facing the electric chair. So he wanted to make a deal. So he uh, requested to speak to the prosecutor, and the prosecutor uh, at the time was uh, apparently had ambitions to run for district, district attorney. So rather than get one conviction, he was going to get three convictions. And after our trials, he did, in fact, resign as prosecutor and run for district attorney on the basis of his strong stance against crime. So what happened was that the uh, the killer was offered a plea bargain for three life sentences in exchange for his testimony against Jesse and me. These plea bargains should not be allowed in capital cases because it's always going to be the most guilty party that takes the plea bargain because they're the one who has the most to lose. Well, they have everything to lose, their so, life. Well, I thought, yes, exactly. So I thought, well, when I found out about it, I thought, well, this is a no-brainer. No innocent person would accept three life sentences. I mean, that's not a bargain, you know, not to an innocent person. So I figured, uh, the, the jury will hear this. They'll know and we'll go home. By the way, I never understood the concept of three life sentences. Does anyone have three lives? I don't know why in this country. It's very odd, right? I've never, like, I mean, uh, anyway, it's very, very odd. And he eventually got out, but that's another story. So it's even weirder. Uh, but, that's another okay. story. But, yeah. but he's also back in, so just okay. so people shouldn't but be But still, afraid. how do you have three life sentences? Why don't you give the guy one life sentence and keep him in instead of three life sentences? I don't know, whatever. That's just another aspect of the case that's, that's very strange. That's and the right. system that's very strange. But anyway, so go ahead. So. So, um, so this plea, plea arrangement was made, unbeknownst to us, and also in order to uh, to justify giving the plea bargain, they have to give the person a polygraph test to prove that they're not making the deal with the real killer. Okay, so apparently he was given a polygraph test, and they submitted a report that he passed the polygraph test. Therefore, they were justified in making the plea bargain. Jesse's trial went first. He was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death in four days. My trial lasted two weeks. Um, we all were uh, appointed the uh, public defender, uh, but because now one was going to testify against the others, they had to give us special public defenders, which is regular lawyers who act as who represent you as if they were the public defender, um, and they don't get paid a lot, so they don't always do a lot because they have other clients they have to make a living so um and my parents were asked actually do you want to maybe get a, a, a hire a lawyer but we thought why should they have to mortgage their home to try to get me a lawyer because we were told even in those days it'd be a hundred thousand dollars or wow. more in those days that was a total fortune so I, I said there's no need to do that I'm completely innocent I mean it's it's not like there was even a fingerprint there's nothing I, there was absolutely nothing against me so we didn't have the dream team we didn't have the expert witnesses or whatever and my lawyer at the time uh, the appointed lawyer said we're not going to put up a defense because there's absolutely no nothing against you there's no evidence against you and it gives me a better position in the closing arguments so i go fine you know whatever you say you're my lawyer i'm not scared i didn't do anything i still believed in truth justice in the american way and superman and all those things so um we the, in the second week of the trial the jury started asking questions they weren't convinced by the killer. So it turns out that the prosecutor or his team, whoever it was, went and located a girl in the jail who had been arrested for a minor drugs charge. And um, she and her boyfriend were arrested. And they told her that if she could help them to convict me, she and her boyfriend would be release, released the next day. If they couldn't, then she would go to prison for a long time. Her life would be ruined and she'd never get back to university. Jailhouse snitches are actually, uh, you know, in the most recent report from the Center for Wrongful Convictions, um, it was shown that in almost 46% of the uh, capital cases that have been overturned, 45.9%, uh, uh, a jailhouse snitch 
was the sort of deciding factor, right? So, Well, she said that I spoke to her uh, in the one night that they put her in the cell block where I was, and I never spoke to her, uh, that um, she said that I told her that I did it, I enjoyed it, and I'd do it again. Mm. Like, all right, somebody would really say that to a strange person, you know, sure. I thought, now they're really going to know that this is ridiculous. And the jury wasn't convinced. And in fact, they asked more questions. And they were starting to ask questions about, like, maybe could they at least consider accomplice or something like that. And it was as a result of the judge's instructions to the jury at that point that they felt that they had no choice to convict but to convict because we didn't put up a defense. And I should say that the judge had been a former highway patrolman and we had asked him to recuse himself from the cases because you couldn't possibly be um, non-biased in a case that involved the killing of policemen if you had been part of that brotherhood yourself. But he refused to step down from the cases. So right, well, it's worth noting that the judge the judge had a nickname, which was Maximum Dan. Yes, right? and he kept a little um, miniature electric chair on his desk that he used to do zip zip zip. You know. Let's just reflect on that for a moment. So you have a judge. This is America. You have a judge who's a former state trooper presiding over a trial in which a state trooper was he a state trooper was killed. There's no reason to think that he wouldn't be totally objective under those circumstances. And he's got an electric chair on his desk going zoop, 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 right? Touching it and like almost like taunting you, right? And he's, and his name was Maximum Dan. So um, it was as a result, though, of his explanation of the law to the jurors that they felt they had no choice but to convict. Then but, comes the sentencing phase. Right. And in the sentencing phase, they have to be unanimous in order to give a death sentence. Okay. And there was one juror, and this is really important for people to know, because people think, uh, you know, one person doesn't make a difference. One person does make a difference, because this juror wasn't convinced. He wasn't really convinced that they should have convicted me, but he surely wasn't going to sentence me to death. And so he stood up for what he believed in the face of all the pressure from the other jurors to agree with them. And as it's as a result of his integrity that my jury wasn't able to be unanimous and I was sentenced to life. That's where the judge gets involved, right? And this principle of judicial override Mm -hmm. is something I want to talk about because this judge then overrode the jury, right? Mm -hmm. And he decided that you should be sentenced to death, right? That's right. And that's an interesting uh, thing to talk about because uh, there were only three states in which this principle of judicial override uh, was constitution was 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 considered constitutional. Mm-hmm. Now there's only one, and it oh. won't shock you to know that it's Alabama. Oh. Even Florida has had it overturned, as has Delaware, which was the other holdout. So now only in Alabama can it happen. Right, that's and, recent. Yes, and judicial override has uh, uh, it's been a, a an issue in about a quarter of the death penalty cases since the death penalty was reenacted in the 70s, and yet it's been a factor in 50 percent of the uh, death sentences that have been overturned. So what that tells you is that the jury is very focused on or or at least interested in the idea that they may be convicting, but they may have enough of a shred of a doubt that they don't want to sentence you to death in that finality. But the judge, for whatever reason, doesn't feel the same compunction. And in your case, it's obvious why. He was a former state trooper, and he was a guy who was a you know, a very, uh, uh, he was Maximum Dan, right? He was going to throw the death penalty <laughs> if he was going to throw it at a vegetarian hippie uh, like you. <laughs> so anyway, um, so you're sentenced to death. Um, you end up on, on uh, there is, at this point, there is no death row for women in Florida, right? No, no, because in 1976, there had been a three-year moratorium just prior to, a, to uh, our cases, and they had um, changed all the death sentences to life. So there, was no, there were very few men on death row, and there were no women. So I became the only woman in the United States with a sentence of death at that time. Wow. Yeah, it is a sort of a distinction, I suppose. Yeah. And um, so they didn't actually know what they were going to do with me. So everybody was kind of speculating in the jail what they would do with me. And um, 
What they did is they cleared out a building that had been used for disciplinary purposes, like if there had been a riot in the prison or whatever, they, and they had to lock up a lot of people. That was what that building had been used for. So there were a number of cells on each side. It was like a dungeon. There's like I'll just say six. I'm not really sure anymore how there were six cells on each side, and in the in the front there was an office where the the guards would stay. And the whole building was surrounded by its own barbed wire fence within the barbed wire of the prison itself. No other prisoners were allowed in, uh, in proximity of that building. So there you are all alone, right? Uh, there's nobody else in the... I was the only person in that building. How insane is that? It, when I was there, I was locked up 24 hours okay, a day. So 24 hours a day in a tiny cell. That's right. It was six steps from the door to the toilet, and I could reach out both my arms and touch the side walls. There was a metal shelf with a thin mattress. That was my bed. And then there was the toilet and sink combination. That was all that was in the cell. I spent the first five years of the 17 years that it took to resolve this in solitary confinement, sentenced to death. Anyone who knows me knows I wear glasses all the time. It's like a part of my face. And the thing is, it's so annoying going to a store and trying glasses on and going through that whole process. Warby Parker has solved the problem. I just participated in the home try-on program, and here's what happened. They sent me the glasses. I tried them on in my office, five different pairs. I showed them to my friends. I, you know, looking at other people. What do you think? This, that, the other thing. I look in the mirror. I picked the one that suited me the best. And then I sent back the other four. And here's the thing. The glasses, you're not going to believe this. They start at $95, including prescription lenses. I mean, that's a small fraction of what I'm used to paying. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, which is super important to me for obvious reasons. Anyway, the free home try-on program works like this. You order five pairs of glasses and you try them on absolutely free for five days. You can show anyone and then there's no obligation to buy. The shipping is free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. So head to warbyparker.com slash conviction to take the quiz that comes before and then order your free home try-on. And now, introducing Scout by Warby Parker. And Scout is for you people, for everyone that wears contact lenses. And here's the thing. They're comfortable, they're breathable, and they're affordable. They're daily contact lenses. They're made from a super moist material that resists drying for lasting hydration and comfort. It's everything you want from a contact lens. Order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5. Unreal. And then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more. Go to warbyparker.com slash conviction. That's warbyparker.com slash conviction. Try it today. In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one could have expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up just like a game-winning play on the field and almost got away with it. The sneak follows a twisting story of a once great athlete who committed that crime and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. Be sure to subscribe to The Sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. After five years in solitary confinement, finally my first appeal came up. It took that long in, in, in those days. And as a result of the judge overruling the jury without giving a proper written reason for having done so, they had to change my sentence from death to life. So then they put me in the prison population, and which was another strange circumstance to try to deal with after having been first a free person and then isolated for five years and then be put into the prison population. So that was another thing. But then after year after my sentence was changed from death to life, that's when my parents um, were killed in a plane crash. The worst part was that my children then became orphans again. And by then my daughter was about seven, six years old. Right, and you remember it. 
I do remember it very clearly. Christina, can I just ask you? I, I'm in awe of your mother. Do you watch this? Do you, do you listen to her and just say, "I"? I mean, who, who is she? Is like, uh, does she have a cape that she wears around at no, night? No. Like, <laughs> that you'd have to ask. I Peter. tell everyone, my mom is the most amazing person you'll ever meet. She's I, my favorite. I, I mean, know. and and then uh, and Peter, we haven't even gotten to you yet. But, she's uh, also the funniest woman in the world. She is. <laughs> <laughs> and so, Sunny. So then. Yes. A number of things happened in the interim. Um, at one point, the guy who actually did the killing was bragging in prison about how he had killed the two officers and, you know, he had these other two people on death row for what he'd done. It, he confessed a number of times. And uh, on one occasion, some other prisoners came forward and actually were willing to go to court and testify. But uh, the judge ruled that it was prisoner's word wasn't believable. So how come it's believable if they testify against you, but it's not believable if they testify for you? Because it's inconvenient for them. That's why, (laughs) you know? So we didn't prevail. And and when that happened, Jesse was like, this is it, babe, we're going home. You know, I told you, keep your spirits up. He was always trying to keep my spirits up. He told you this by letters. Yes, always by letters. letters. So you knew that the real killer had been bragging and had essentially confessed. Yeah. So you're like, now, We're going home. I mean, obviously, right? right? But we didn't go home. No, you didn't go home. In fact, uh, quite the opposite. And uh, it was at at that hearing that they brought, brought us both to court. That's the last time I ever saw Jesse, actually, in person. I always advise people if you're going to have to go into the appeals process to get a very young lawyer because my original appeals lawyer uh, died of a heart attack before the appeals process could be completed because it takes so many years. As you know, people spend 20, 30 years on death row before they're exonerated. Get a young lawyer. Get a young lawyer. That's a fantastic quote. Who would think of that except for you? (laughs) Anyway. So anyway, these were two young lawyers who were mentoring under him, and they both decided they would continue to fight for my case because they believed in my innocence, thank God. In the 11th year, these two young lawyers who paired up and then eventually married uh, give me the use of a private investigator from some other client who had paid for it for one day. And I want to find the woman, the young woman who testified against me in the trial, right? The one that we call the jailhouse snitch. So they said, forget about it. She's a drug addict. She's probably dead. But she wasn't because after this happened, she cleaned up her life. And she never looked back. And she moved to Wyoming somewhere. And she was taking care of her sick father. And she had a little family of her own. And she had no idea what happened to me. She didn't even know. So the, lawyer, the, the, the investigator found her. The lawyers go and they see her, and she cried, and she apologized. She was devastated to find out that what, at least partly as a result of what she had done, had happened to me. But they, she, was, she would do anything except come back to Florida. And there's a reason why she wanted to come back to Florida. Yeah, because she was scared to death, because the prosecutor was now district attorney, even more powerful, and she was afraid that he would find a way to put her in prison too, maybe for perjury that he helped her do. So she was terrified. And unless she was willing to come back to testify and be cross-examined, we couldn't use her testimony. Right. So the prosecutor sent a couple of his guys out to Wyoming to talk to her father, to have him convince his daughter that she shouldn't come back and get involved. Her sick father. Yes, and that's what made her come back. She got so mad that they would dare to disturb her sick father that she came back. And she is a hero. She's heroic. We had a federal hearing. She testified. She took the stand. She told everything that happened. She sat there and apologized to me. She cried. Then it was the prosecutor's turned to cross-examine as he approached the bench where she sat. She grabbed her chest. (gasps) She started to hyperventilate, and she had a heart attack. (laughs) 
And all, honestly, all I could think of at that moment was, please, God, don't let her die before cross-examination. Please, because unless we could cross-examine, you can't use her testimony. Everything she said would have been for nothing. Oh, my God. So anyway, they, the the medical person came in. Uh, they brought the paramedics. They took her away in an ambulance. And um, we didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, finally... Um, she recovered. She went back to Wyoming, and the judge said that we could videotape her testimony from Wyoming. So they all went out there, and they did the, the cross-examination or whatever. And in the end, the judge ruled that it was her word, former drug addict, against the word of the upstanding citizen, the prosecutor. And we didn't prevail again. So meanwhile, uh, was this before or as after Jesse was executed? That was in the 11th year. Right. So in he, the was 15th year. Yeah, he was still alive. Yes. In the 15th year of incarceration, Jesse received his third death warrant, which is normally fatal. And in his case, it was as well. And he was taken to the electric chair. Right. And then it gets worse because in Jesse's case, and people may remember this um, because it's a very well-documented and, and famous uh uh, tragedy, tragic situation. <clears throat> um, so in Jesse's case, uh, he went to the electric chair, but the electric chair malfunctioned. It was known yes. as Old Sparky, right? It so it was. wasn't exactly a modern uh, uh, piece of equipment. Built by prisoners? Built by prisoners, and uh, there's at least a theory going around that they may have deliberately tampered with it in order to make his execution more... Uh, more like a torture, yes, Yes. um, because he had, of course, been convicted of killing two police officers. So um, so in in his case, the electric chair malfunctioned. Uh, It took uh, over 10 minutes for him to die. Uh, It took 13 and a half minutes for Jesse Teferro to die, and the word was in the prison that they had substituted the natural sea sponge in the helmet with an artificial one so that when they pulled the switch, instead of dying, Instead of conducting the current properly, he caught, he fire. caught fire. Right, he caught fire. And the, the, the witnesses on behalf of the media said that the flame shot two feet in the air out of his head and that smoke came out of his ears and that it took 13 and a half minutes for Jesse Tafara to die. And um, <sighs> we shouldn't have a death penalty in this country, in my opinion, at all. I don't think the death penalty should exist in any country um, because if you believe in the death penalty you have to be willing to accept the idea that people like Jesse Tafaro are going to be executed there is no perfect system there is no way to make sure you've got it right there's always going to be human error you can't get that back no Um, so so Jesse's executed. And you can't give him back to his children either. No, you can't give him back to his children. Um, I mean, and, and Christina, I mean, I can't even, uh, it's hard for me to even bring myself to ask you um, what you experienced during this period of time. I mean, were you aware that your parents were innocent? How? No, I wasn't aware they were innocent, but I mean, I didn't. I didn't believe it either. Now I've I've blacked out a lot from it just as a coping mechanism for myself. Not blacked out. I remember a lot of things. Um, I don't really honestly remember what I thought. I just knew that they were gone, and you know, my mom was always telling me, you know, I'm coming home, you know, coming home soon. You know, I just wanted them back. I I don't think I cared. <laughs> I don't think I cared. I just wanted my parents back. Um, it's funny because the day my they killed my father, um, I had two friends with me, and I saw them both yesterday after like 20 years, both of them. The ch- the We were children. And I'll never forget that morning because I wanted to go to school. I didn't want to be home sinking in the news and my parents are watching it it's all because you're 15 I'm 15 now now. and my two friends Sarah and Marvin were on my bus with me but I was the first one on the bus and when I got on the bus the bus driver was actually listening to it on the radio and I could hear it and she didn't know and the next stop the bus driver didn't know the bus driver didn't know that was my father right. right So the next stop was my friend Sarah, 
and I'm just sitting stoic on the bus. I probably was crying. But Sarah knew. Sarah knew what was happening, and um, she came, and she just got on the bus and sat on one side of me and put her arm around me. We didn't say a word. (laughs) Then my friend Marvin, who's an NYPD officer here, by the way, um, but he was 15. now, but we were kids then got on the bus and he sat on my other side and just put his arm around me and they held me in love the entire way to school and they knew what was happening. And, um, I didn't end up staying in school because I had an issue while I was at school and I got sent home, which I should have been home anyway. But, um, I didn't know, I didn't know about the malfunction of the chair. And I actually found out walking through the mall, I think it was the next day, through a friend of mine who was like, Tina, I'm really sorry about your dad. And I'm like, thanks, you know. He's like, it's terrible what happened. And I'm like, it is. And he goes, no, but how his head caught fire. And I had, I didn't know, nobody told me. And I wasn't watching TV. I wasn't, I was trying not to pay attention to it, to tell you the truth. And um, that's how I found out. And I was angry, to say the least, that nobody told me. And I'm hearing it from not a stranger, but not somebody I should be hearing that from either. And um, it was really hard. I had seen my dad, was it just a few days before, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And um, and it was a really hard visit, knowing what was going to happen to him. Uh, really emotional visit. My grandmother, my grandma Kay, his mother, somehow finagled me to get an actual contact visit because it was my only visit with my father behind glass. And it was always contact visits. So knowing it's the last time I'm going to see him, I really wanted to sit on his lap. I wanted to give him a hug. I wanted to kiss his face, you know. And um, somehow she finagled it, but they did have to strip search me, which was weird because I'm a kid. (laughs) But I didn't care. I just wanted to be with my dad. So, But uh, I will never forget that day. Yeah, insane. And I, you know... I don't know what to say about it, but it was very, very, very hard because I'm connected with my father. I'm connected with my mother on a different level. I can feel them. I can, you know, so I knew he was gone. His, you know, and and then knowing what happened to him made it even harder. And not being told immediately, too, was like, wow. And then you have everyone, you know, feeling sad for you and makes it, worse you know and then I got sent away to school I got sent away to boarding school like about six months later eight months later see there's no help for the families of people uh, who are on death row there's no help at all I can't even talk um (laughs) well I'll help you out here um you know It was, it's, no one knows what to, to do. There's, there's actually no help for the families. I mean, when, when, at the very least, when somebody's being executed, there should be somebody for their family. And there isn't. So at first I was very upset and angry at the foster parents who were taking care of Tina to, to know that they, instead of keeping her there and loving her and giving her that family support and letting her be perhaps with me and Grandma Kay, you know, so we could grieve together, they, she was sent away. But to be fair, I understand now, they didn't know what the heck to do. What do you do with this child? How do you deal with this? And it's shame, the shame of it. So they sent her away to a school for children with emotional and behavioral problems. And she was locked up until she was 18 years old. So now she's locked up too. And yeah, and it, in a strange way, it gave us a commonality. You know, like 
Yeah, I understand what it's like to be locked up, Ma, because I was locked up too. So the suffering of these wrongful convictions isn't confined to the one person. It's their whole family that suffers. And um, some the, the people whose children have a family to go to that you know they can stay with do much better than the people whose children don't have family to stay with and end up in foster care because they just they just don't have a chance. The stigma um, on top of everything else, because um, for little um, Christina, um, you know, to to be getting that sympathy is sort of nice, but even that's got to be complicated because your friends didn't know if your father was a cop killer or not, right? You didn't even know. Right. And I grew up in a neighborhood, like it was an upper middle class neighborhood, so there's a lot of maybe keeping up with the Joneses, if I can say that. And, you know, the people I was with, you know, they didn't want everybody to know my story because, again, you know, people are going to judge. They're going to, you know, oh, my gosh, you have this child in your house, you know. So, you know, and I just showed up out of nowhere, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm part of their family, and I have a brother. And I, <laughs> so it's like it was complicated. It's really, really complicated. And yes, yeah, I would I would go to visit my parents, and I would I would come back to school, and obviously I would have not mental issues, but I would have emotional issues going on. I'm just you know I go, I take you know a week out of school, and I'm going from prison to prison, and I'm getting sick. I have double ear infections. I, you know, I'm on a bus to Dad's was what like seven hours up to Dad's prison from they don't make it house. Easy. No, you know I would fly by myself, and it was very hard you know, as a as a child. And I, again, I don't remember a lot of it, but I do remember having a little trouble in school when I'd come back, and there was an adjustment again. And you know, I just visited both my parents in prison, and right from prison to right. prison, if yeah. that ain't something, no, right? Until it got to the point where um, apparently they felt it was just too disruptive Much. to their lives to keep bringing her, and they stopped. Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialists in issues including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And remember, anything you share is confidential. Now you can get help on your own schedule at your own pace and your own time. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions and chat, text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor also, remember this, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Wrongful Conviction listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code WRONGFUL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com wrongful. That's betterhelp.com slash wrongful. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. Betterhelp.com slash wrongful. So then finally, uh, just after Jesse's execution, uh, a friend of mine, a childhood friend, her name is Mickey Dickoff. She came to visit me because she wanted to console me over what had happened. I mean, the whole country, the whole world heard what happened to Jesse. In fact, they stopped using the electric chair in Florida as a result of Jesse's execution for Yeah, so I, mean, I was 15 and living in New York, and I heard about it. So, you yeah, know, exactly. a thousand miles away. Yeah. Oh, people over the world heard about it. And Jesse said, they will remember my name. That was one of the last things he said. We had a 10-minute phone call just before he was executed, just maybe a few hours before. Christina, do you remember the last thing he said to you? He said to be brave. Yeah. And you are. And I am. I think uh, if he could see you now, he would be uh, extremely he proud. He, he can, can see he me can. now. <laughs> Good answer. So um, uh, Mickey came to visit me. And she said, what can I do to help you? Because we were kids growing up on Long Island together. And I was like the most least likely person in the whole world to ever be in, <laughs> in any way involved in something like this. And everybody that knew me knew that. 
So she said, what can I do? Uh, can I talk to a lawyer? Because she's a documentary filmmaker and she has research skills and her uh, partner is a civil lawyer, but still a lawyer that knows about how the law works and they wanted to help me. So I said, sure, go talk to my lawyers. Fine, you know, so they did. And um, as a result of that, about two and a half years after Jesse was executed, they were able to put together my habeas corpus in a way with diagrams, which they had to get special permissions, first time they ever used diagrams in a habeas corpus. And they were able to clearly show what we had been trying to show for years is that I couldn't and Jesse couldn't possibly have committed this crime. And my sentence and conviction were overturned and... I should have been free, but as you know, they don't like to admit they're wrong exactly. So um, they threatened to take me to a new trial. <laughs> and um, in those days, it was just, just, I think I was the second person after Alfred that they did this. The, the Alfred plea is a thing where they say, if you let us convict you of a lesser charge, you don't have to plead guilty. You can maintain your innocence, and then you can leave. You can be free. But if not, we're going to take you back to a new trial. It could take years. We might sentence you to death again. And now they're more desperate than before because now it's going to show all the illegal things that they did. So they're really going to be desperate. We already knew that they had another false witness already lined up to come to the new trial. I even heard that she was promised a white couch for her living room in exchange for her testimony. Well, a white couch. A white couch. couch. So it's nice. We've got orange Cadillacs and white couches. I mean, this story is... Yeah. I mean, you know, Mickey and and Christy, the my friends who were helping me at the time to help with helping working with my lawyers, they were warned that it was dangerous to even try to help, and that they were being followed, and that their phones were being tapped. Everyone was so afraid because of the power. You know, uh, a person in that position has a lot of power. And um, they have almost all the power, actually. Yeah. Yes, it's you know, it's interesting how it works because when someone is accused of a crime, the police gather all the evidence, they give it over to the prosecutor. The prosecutor then decides which parts he's going to give to the defense and which parts he doesn't have to by law give to the offense. To, to, to the defense, and then they have the trial. So it's like I, we have a deck of cards, 52 cards. I have all the cards. I'm going to look at them. I'm going to decide which ones I'm going to give you. And now we're going to play. You're going to play with me? Right. Of course not, because the deck is totally stacked. I decide which cards you can have. I'm not giving you all the aces, I can tell you. Right. So that's how, it, that's how it works. It's, it's really not fair to put another human being in that position. Because, look, we're all subject to human nature, okay? Everybody wants to win. Everybody wants to be the best. And if there's nobody ever going to know, come on, you know? Nobody's ever going to know that you hid that one card. We have a situation where there's these hearings going on. I am now offered a deal. They offered to me, this is before the alpha plea thing comes up. They offered to me, they say, okay. We're having these hearings. So the, uh, uh, exactly, this is, it's interesting what happened in the hearings. First of all, in the hearings, we find out about the fact that uh, there, there was a polygraph test. Now, Mickey says, why should we believe them? They, they lied about so much. We want to see this polygraph test, the actual graph that came off the machine, right? So they get a hold of the polygraph test and they hire a guy who was a former policeman who's now a polygraph expert and he takes a look at it and he says he didn't pass the polygraph test he failed the polygraph test where it said he passed he actually failed so the report that they entered saying he passed the polygraph test was a lie mm -hmm. they entered a false report 
And that was the basis of their arrangement with him in the first place. That day they come to me and they say, okay, we're going to offer you a deal. If you'll say that the guy they made the deal with didn't do it, and I didn't do it, we'll let you go free today. You can have a steak dinner today. Excuse me. I'm a vegetarian. What were they trying to say? If I didn't do it and the other guy didn't do it, then who did it? Your husband, the, Jesse. They, yeah, they figured husband, we'll yeah. blame Jesse. He's dead anyway, right? And we all go home. And everybody's fine. But I'm not doing that. No. Okay, first of all, he still has children and a mother. Who, Second of all, I they took everything from me. They took my whole life from me. They took everything from but my integrity. And it was like, I felt like I was, it was like dealing with the devil. Now they wanted that last thing. They wanted my very soul. And I wasn't going to do it. Because I had made a life for myself in prison. We started a little uh, community group to try to make life better for the lifers. We, we, um, I, I, I was teaching math and, 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 um, English in the school. I was teaching yoga because yoga and meditation and prayer was what saved me while I was on death row. There's not enough time to tell everything, but it was my practice of yoga that helped me with the physical effects of all the emotions and meditation that helped me to clear myself spiritually and prayer, which gave me the hope that there was something out there stronger than them that could see me through. And so I had made a life for myself in there. I could hold my head up and say, you know what? At least I have integrity. Whereas if I were to do that, no matter where you are, you have to live with yourself. Right, it's your soul. So I said, I'm sorry. I don't eat steak. Thank you very much. Take me back to prison. They didn't know who they were dealing with. So I said, take me back. And they did. They took me back. <laughs> Things went on usual. I went back to my job at, in the prison, whatever. And, uh, and um, then uh, a week or so later, I got called back on a Friday. I mean, now, you get called back to, to court on a Friday, they know that everybody's sure you're going home because they don't want to keep you in the county over the weekend. So everybody lined, they lined the walkways. They were like, you're going home. You're going home. Oh, they're all patting me on the back, say hello to your children. You know, you're going home. Um, they took me back to court, and I was like praying, and I was like, I could almost feel my parents and Jesse around me, you know, in the van. Because you're, you know, you've got your hands handcuffed with the box, you know, so you can't, and your feet handcuffed and everything, feet cuffed, I guess you call it. And um, they took me back to court. And my lawyers say to me, um, okay, they're offering you this deal. Another deal. Yeah. This time they say that if you'll just allow them to read into the record, you know, a conviction of a lesser degree, you don't have to plead guilty and you can go home. And you don't have to implicate Jesse. No. You, and you can go home. And you have 10 minutes. And I sat there and I thought, well, you know, when I went into prison, when this happened, I was 27 years old. By the time I was sitting there trying to make this decision, I was 45 years old. When I went in, I was a young mother and a wife and a daughter. And at that point in my life, when I had to make this decision, I was a widow and an orphan, and a grandmother, because my son, Eric, by then had a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter of his own. And I thought, you know, you never know what will happen in the next few years if they're going to take me to a trial again and how long that's going to take and whatever what well, the you, outcome would Sonny, be. Sonny, you knew what they were capable of by this point. You, I mean, you made yes. the right decision. And so I told them that I would accept on the condition that I was not going to plead guilty to anything. 
that I would maintain my innocence. And they said that was okay, but that during the hearing, I had to keep absolutely silent. I was not allowed to say anything. That was the deal. I was not allowed to say anything during this next hearing. So, okay. This is hilarious, by the way. So she knows. So she's laughing. Christina's laughing. Because I can't keep my mouth shut. She can't. And the judge is... Uh, Read. You see, what happens at one of these Alfred hearing things is that they, the prosecutor is allowed to read into the record everything he would have said against you had there been a new trial, and you're not allowed to say anything to refute what he's saying, which is a bunch of crap. So I'm sitting there listening to this litany of just ridiculous stuff, in my opinion. And I'm trying to think, what can I say? There's got to be something I can get away with saying here. So I go, Your Honor. <laughs> and my lawyer pinches me. She's pinching me. And he goes, yes. I said, I'd like a drink of water. I have a bad taste in my mouth. <laughs> wow. <You're>... And he <laughs> okay. goes, Bailiff, get a drink of water. <laughs> I get my water and Holly's <laughs> dying. <laughs> So at least I said something. I made it <laughs> known. I had to say That's, something. I had to I, say something. I, I, I wasn't sure there was anything that could make me love you more than I already do. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's one, of the, that's one of the best one-liners in the history yeah, of the I'm world. So congratulations on that. You got the last word in court, right, so to speak, because <laughs> so to you, speak. you managed to give them a, a, a very sunny-ish sort of middle <laughs> finger to the entire system, and you were freed. And now I want to talk about your life now, because yeah. it's extraordinary. Um, everything about you is extraordinary. Um, but the crazy twist that life took several years ago is really uh, the subject that I want to turn to now. It's my favorite part. Is it your favorite part? <laughs> yeah. That's great. So it's one of my favorite parts, yeah. too. So so what happened is uh, I, I, I took time off to to get a life for myself and to get a persona other than the victim of injustice. And I became Sunny, the yoga teacher, the happy pink dot floater. I used to wear pink all the time because in prison you couldn't wear nice colors. So I had these pink uh, sweatpants and pink sweatshirt. And I used to run around being the yoga teacher all over Los Angeles until um, finally um, I went back into the death penalty movement again. And I met some representatives of Amnesty International from Ireland and they heard me talk and invited me to Ireland to speak. And, and this is where uh, the story gets good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this Peter's is the laughing. happy ending. The happy ending. <laughs> yes, the happy ending. She, I got this phone call one day, and um, American woman who said her name was Sonny Jacobs, and whom I'd never heard of, and said she was going to be giving a talk three days later where I, in the town I was in, and invited me to come along. I said, what are you going to talk about? She said, a death penalty. I said, yes, I'm interested in that. I'll come along, and I brought two friends. And so uh, I went along, and the door opened across the room, and this little lady walked in, and I walked over to her, and I said, you must be Sonny Jacobs. And she said to me, well, you must be Peter Pringle. <laughs> and she gave me this big smile, which she has. <laughs> so she went to share her story, and I listened, and I was devastated by what I heard. I, I, I was hugely emotionally upset by the tragedy of her, what had happened to her. And I knew that I had to talk to her. I just knew I had to speak with her. This was somebody who would understand my situation just as I understood hers. And so afterwards, I said, I'd like to talk with you. And she said, yes, so would I. She said, but uh, I'm leaving in an hour. I said, where are you going? She said, we have to go to Cork. She was traveling around the country with the the, uh, Secretary of Amnesty Ireland, uh, Mary Lawler, and... um, she had to be in Cork the following evening for the AGM of Amnesty. That's about five hours away from where we were. So I said to her, well, if you stay overnight here in Galway, I guarantee I'll get you there in time for your meeting. And so we did. And I took her down to the countryside, showed her all the sights, and, and we got to Cork, and she did her talk. When we were crossing the River Shannon on the car ferry, and Chris, our friend, had given us a packed lunch, and he was a vegetarian, And we were both too. vegetarians at the time. And uh, so we had this packed lunch, and Sonny turned to me and she said, what's your interest in all of this? I said, well, well I was wrongly convicted and sentenced to death, too. I spent almost 15 years in prison. Did you believe him? 
I couldn't believe it. Yeah. She said, oh, "Oh," she said, but you seem to have come out of it okay. She said, how did you get through? And I said, well, yoga and meditation. Jesus. And that's what she had used as well. And when I said that to her, she just lit up and she said, oh, my God, yoga and meditation. So then when we were driving down after that from the car ferry down to Cork, we were sharing our story with each other. It was the most amazing journey I've ever had in my life because we were at various stages. We were laughing our heads off. We were crying our eyes out. It was a hugely emotional trip the whole way down the road as we shared things with each other. <laughs> and we wished each other goodbye. We said we'd keep in touch, and we did. And so our relationship developed. And now, truly what is can only be considered a full circle, uh, a current Sonny and Peter now run a thing called the Sunny Sanctuary. And the Sunny Sanctuary is a... Truly a sunny sanctuary, although there's not that much sun in Ireland, but it's a sanctuary. Oh, we get our share of it. We get our share, yeah. <laughs> it's, everyone thinks it rains all the time, but it doesn't. No, it um, doesn't. No. So, um, and you have a lot of nice golf courses over there. So, um, <laughs> Sonny and Peter run the Sunny Sanctuary where they have found a, an extraordinary way of sharing their experience and creating a positive outcome from all this uh, negative uh, which is a, which is a weak word to use for what's gone on in your lives, and now, they now bring newly exonerated people uh, over to stay with them, and they're able to share their experiences and learn uh, anything from yoga to farming to just being. How do people they want to give to the uh, Sunny Sanctuary? How do people? Is there a, what's the website? Yeah, there's a website. It's called the Sunny Center. The Sunny Center. Right, and that's S U N N Y. Yep. Um, the Sunny Center and there's sunny, is it sunnycenter.com dot yeah. com right and um, and in the website there's, it describes how you can donate if you I want can to donate, donate right yeah, and, and so so different ways of helping and you're just doing such incredible work yes it's what we do and it's what we love doing and it's not just healing for the exonerees but it's healing for us too. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps. And you know, I'm a proud donor to The Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and in so doing, helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. It's easy. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I want to thank our amazing producers, engineers, and editors, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number no. 1 and PRX. I'm excited to tell you about a new serialized podcast called American Jihadi. If you're into investigative journalism, if you're a news junkie, or if you love great nonfiction storytelling, it's a must listen. American Jihadi tells the incredible true story of the unbelievable relationship between journalist Christoph Putzel and Omar Hamami. Throughout the eight-episode series, Christoph recounts his investigation into the life of Omar, an American-born U.S. citizen who became leader of the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, landing him on the list of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. From Omar's hometown in Alabama to war-torn Somalia, Christoph seeks to get answers. Why would a Southern Baptist turn to terrorism? And how close should a journalist get to his source? Listen to American Jihadi, out now on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen.